like everything actually is kind of working although this is only the second third time i've recorded down here so we'll see, we'll see. excellent happy yeah. to happy to be the second beta tester <laughs> this is the prepared Today, my guest is Kip Bradford. Uh, Kip is uh, qualified in all kinds of ways that I can't even really put my mind around. Not sure uh, that I can either. <laughs> cool. Uh, Kip, well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Spencer. It's good to be here. Um, so we, we, we <laughs> why, why don't we actually start with like, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I call myself an engineer. Okay. Um, because academically... I have two degrees as a biomedical engineer, mm. um, but I've spent a lot of time designing and building things. So I like to be much more hands-on than the theoretical academic background that I have, uh, sort of as a research science engineer. Um, despite my engineering, biomedical engineering background and interest in medical devices, I actually spent the first 10 years of my career as a toy inventor. And uh, five years into that career as a toy inventor, I had some overlap as an entrepreneur. So I started three businesses in that time period with some colleagues. Um, one was a medical device. One was a golf club. Uh, one was a hearing aid. And those businesses all failed. For Congratulations. Various, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> for various reasons. And the reasons... Uh, are not that atypical. They usually come down to people more than they come down to money or ideas. By the time you get venture capital investment, enough people have vetted your ideas and your market and your technology to know that, yeah, there's a chance. But it's really hard to understand how your partners will behave when things go south mm. uh, or when things even get the slightest bit tough. Startups are really fragile. It's easy to break them, and, and that's what happened in these cases. Uh, then after that string of startups uh, and kind of winding down the toy inventor career, uh, I became faculty at Brown University and taught entrepreneurship and innovation and design, and then launched a couple of more startups, uh, then was manufacturing some products under my own brand, then got hired. Uh, I left Brown, had uh, another startup, then got hired uh, to a funky position. I interviewed for a job at MIT called Professor of Other at the Media Lab. I got hired and then promptly told, well, here's the funny thing. We're just going to give you two years to do whatever you want to do. You won't get to call yourself professor of other yet. You'll be a senior research scientist at the media lab, but we want you to create a new field of science. That's your job for the next two years. And if we like it enough, we'll keep you on as a tenure track professor. And at a new field of science, that sounds like. Uh, like Newtonian level <laughs> shit. Like, is, like how 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 broad was that actually? Well, I, I was given that edict, and mm. I really didn't know where to start. So I said, "Well, I think they hired me because I do a lot of weird, wacky stuff. I've got new theories of economics that are based on thermodynamic systems. I've got new programming language ideas, and a lot of things that." I was super fascinated by intellectually and I would run these. I had uh, five faculty mentors that were senior media lab faculty who were just helping me try to figure out what this new field of science was going to be based on my interests and my skills. 
um, assuming that I had unique interests and unique skills, those should ideally, if I was qualified, parlay into something significant. And that was the premise. So I spent the first six months rolling out ideas that were uh, aggregations of my different interests. So like, I really have all these ideas about thermodynamics and all these other ideas about economics and design and computer programming languages. And, you know, some mixture of that should all be, I should be able to turn that into a new field. But um, when I interviewed, I had uh, demonstrated or shown a couple projects that were maybe a little bit more oddball, like refrigeration. So I had some weird refrigerator systems, some weird air conditioning systems that I developed and manufactured. And that caught people's attention, I guess. And um, so right after I got hired, several faculty came to me and said, how, so you're the guy that's interested in refrigeration, can do refrigeration. Can you fix the air conditioning in this building? And I was just like, (laughs) um, yeah. And while I'm at it, I'll clean the toilets and like redo some of the plumbing because you know, you're basically calling me a tradesperson, and uh-huh. it, it was it wasn't meant as an insult. It was just like the air conditioning in this building sucks. Yeah, the environment in this building, like we have this beautiful building, the MIT Media Lab, but it's just uncomfortable all the time, mm-hmm. and people are wearing sweaters in the summer, and they're like walking around in shorts in the winter, and it's it's all a mess. So six months in. After my colleagues saying, oh, no, you know, your economic theory is great, but you're not an economics professor or, you know, your design work is amazing, but it's it just doesn't feel tangible enough for a media lab professor. Uh, Six months of that. And I said, I give up. I'm just going to go into my garage and make myself an air conditioned chair because you're right. The air conditioning in this building Mm. is miserable and I'm always uncomfortable. So. Uh, there's no way I'm going to create a new field of science. I might as well just have some fun for the next year and a half on your money. Well, that started getting people's attention because I was like, (laughs) and while I'm at it, I'm going to rethink refrigerators and I'm going to rethink air conditioning and really just rethink thermodynamics because thermodynamics, we're just doing it wrong. You know, I look at buildings and it's a mechanical engineered system, except the entire purpose of that building is almost like an exoskeleton for people. You know, it's the boundary layer between us and the outside environment. And that exoskeleton is not functioning the way it should. It's wasting energy. It makes us uncomfortable. Um, Nobody likes the temperature in the media lab. So why don't I fix that? Like, yeah, I'll fix that. And uh, as I really got into it, I was like, oh, wait, there's a whole untapped world here. If I combine biomedical engineering and thermodynamics and HVAC and refrigeration, and these these trades that have been overlooked by engineering, it's like, well, Will's Carrier figured that out, you know, in, in 1918. So we don't have to do that anymore. Um, that became my purpose. It was like, oh, actually, you're right. Will's Carrier did figure it out in 1918. Yeah. A lot has changed since then. You know, we don't run elevators off of city water and then just dump the water into the sewer when the elevator has to come back down because that's really wasteful and we have limited resources and water's expensive. Energy is expensive. You know, a nuclear power plant costs a lot of money to build. So let's figure out smarter ways to use the energy. Let's figure out better ways to make people comfortable. And um, that became my research and the work that I'm doing today. So, so how are you doing it now? What, what's your... I saw a little bit of this a couple of months ago. (laughs) uh, What I saw was a, as I understand it, like remarkably inexpensive 
chiller that could bring things down to very close to absolute zero, but you were using it to make ice cream pancakes. Yeah. So it was kind of, it was disorienting in a way. <laughs> well, not quite absolute zero. So minus 80 degrees C is oh, the target. Okay. Okay. And um, if you were to go buy a commercial minus 80 degree freezer, it would cost you $10,000 maybe mm-hmm. uh, for a research grade system. So there's a whole world of do-it-yourself biology, DIY bio, and hacker spaces that are interested in hacking on bio. Um, the problem with hacking on biology is we've solved a lot of the DIY technologies in that space, but not refrigeration. There are not a lot of people who, because it's this trade that we figured out, um, have spent time getting involved in the trade to understand what it means to refrigerate to minus 80 degrees C. And uh, so it's still $10,000 to do that until I built a very low cost minus 80 degree system that would cost you maybe five, $600 Hmm. Um, to make a small freezer, you know, two cubic feet instead of 20 cubic feet. uh, But still something that's functional, portable, compact, serviceable by someone who's not an expert in ultra low temperature refrigeration freezing. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, so, okay. So you designed this thing, you engineered, engineered this thing is really the word, right? Um, and then what what happens to it? Like, what, how are you are you marketing this? Are you developing this as a business? What's the ultimately? So I manufacture now, uh, and actually before I started MIT and right around the middle of my time as faculty at Brown University, started a business and a line of products that were advanced thermal systems. Hmm. So heating and cooling products that tended to be compact, lightweight low voltage, uh, and highly portable. So applications like uh, medevac, where you've got somebody in a helicopter, you need to maintain their body temperature as they've had some traumatic injury, and you lay a blanket over them, you flip a switch on a box, and that box keeps their temperature at 98 degrees or 94 Mm -hmm. degrees uh, Fahrenheit, whatever you want that to be. So I was developing these systems um, that were basically small niche markets for refrigeration and cooling technologies. And uh, when I got hired to MIT, that kind of became like backburnered mm-hmm. for the first six months. And then it became the focus of my research. And uh, as I did this very low temperature cooling system, um, obviously great applications in do-it-yourself biology, but a lot of other applications. So I'm evaluating where it makes most sense to Mm -hmm. build and sell those. Um, I think just as a public service, getting some out in the DIY bio world would be great. Um, There's a commercial product that is an anti-griddle. It's a trademarked name, the anti-griddle, which is a high-end tool for... uh, for culinary artists. This is basically what I saw. Yes, that okay. is what you saw. So the anti-griddle, you can put something on it. Instead of heating it up quickly, it cools it off very quickly. And mm-hmm. if you want to make uh, frozen desserts, great. For doing candy, where you have to control the transition temperatures to control the crystalline structure in like a melted sugar, um, it's a nice tool for something like that. Hmm. So it's it's got great applications in the culinary world and um, it's on my list of products, but it's not the first one. I've got some scientific cooling systems that are just much higher margin. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they, the products in the scientific cooling world sell for maybe uh, five to Mm $10,000. 
and not super high volumes, but the sort of thing that I can manufacture myself in-house um, by hand, actually my hand if I have to, instead of hiring someone. Um, I sell 10 or 20 scientific chillers a year and huh. it's a good business. Interesting. It's okay. So what are the, what are the components of a scientific chiller? It depends on how good your scientific chiller is. <laughs> <laughs> so for a, a low end, say $5,000 scientific chiller, typically you have a refrigeration compressor, you've got some copper tubing, um, you have a heat exchanger to get rid of the heat. So a hot side heat exchanger called a condenser. Mm -hmm. You have a cold side heat exchanger called an evaporator and you have a control computer and there's usually some either uh, chilled fluid reservoir that might be a tank or just a water bath. So that's a basic scientific chiller where, you know, if I have a water bath, I want to keep it at, at 15 degrees Celsius uh, for maintaining some process at temperature um, and then stainless steel tank surrounded by some cooling coils. You set the temperature and little thermostat tells the controller when to turn the compressor on and off. So there you're just maintaining some water at a certain temperature Correct. and then whatever the person using it is they're, they're, they're working on a test tube right. and dunking that in the water, leaving that in the water. Right. Right. Okay. So you might have something like that, or you might have someone who's doing, um, some say photolithography that needs to be super precise <laughs> and you have to maintain a very, very, very constant temperature in that process or else the thermal variations will cause expansions and contractions at a scale that will throw off your precision photolithography. For example, if you're going to make a next generation processor, um, yeah. that is really critical to maintain temperatures plus or minus like a hundredth of a degree Celsius, um, huh. things like laser cooling. So, um, the Glowforge, uh, laser printer, uh, laser printer, the Glowforge laser cutter. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, doesn't, Glowforge. Don't, don't they call it a laser 3d printer or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Something like yes. that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. The, the Glowforge products, Device, um, yeah. <laughs> have cooling in them because you have to maintain temperature of the laser, not just so it overheats, but so the laser is stable because huh. as the temperature changes, the lasing cavities properties change. And as that happens, your laser precision goes off pretty significantly. Is it a thermal expansion thing or something like that? Or is it? Um, I don't know exactly what the physics are. Thermal okay. expansion is definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, but I think just the reaction kinematics, you oh, know, interesting. like whatever's going on yeah. uh, molecularly in the gases, you, you kind of want to keep it at one temperature yeah. uh, to keep them stable. So there's a huh. whole bunch of processes and uh, systems where temperature control is important. Yeah, yeah. Beyond like hot summer day and I want ice cream. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So you are you are manufacturing these things yes. in the tens. Yes. Uh, and you are doing it mostly? Uh, so far I'm doing like 98% of the work. Okay, Occasionally cool. I'll have someone come in and help like bend copper tubing or do some yeah. quality control. Yeah. And so, okay. So what is that manufacture? What are the manufacturing processes span? I mean, you're, you're obviously like you're purchasing some components. You have right. a motor or something or a pump, I guess. Yep. Right. Uh, so I'll actually start the process a little sure. earlier, which yeah, is yeah. that finding components is really hard. You can't just yeah. go to DigiKey or Mauser or McMaster car or Amazon and buy raw materials. So I'll, um, start with refrigeration grade copper tubing. Uh, 
Um, what is refrigeration grade tubing like? Is that just is is it is it a purity of the material or is it just it's, like a a pressure rating or something like that? Both or? a purity material, it's a pressure rating, and it's a flexibility. So I need okay. something that I can uh, bend into the shape that I need, and mm-hmm. it won't lose strength. Um, so that that tends to be going to a refrigeration supply place and and getting like a fifty foot or hundred foot uh, rolls of copper quarter inch copper tubing. <laughs> Uh, also, the ends are capped and it's filled with nitrogen, and that prevents oxidation from getting uh, becoming a problem on the inside. So you think about a refrigerator, your household refrigerator is supposed to run 25 years with no maintenance, mm-hmm. no oil changes. This is a piston running back and forth in a chamber, constantly rubbing metal against metal, and it can do that for 25 years without failing for the it's most part. remarkable yeah totally remarkable and the evolution of precision on these uh compressors is is just impressive that they're manufactured in millions of units every month across mm-hmm. the globe and that they can maintain these high precision uh long lifespan performances is is really cool so so I find some compressors I find some copper tubing I find uh a vendor um to either purchase from or custom manufacture things called filter dryers. So a filter dryer is in line with the copper tubing. It re- removes any moisture from the line that would mix with the oils and create acids that would eat away your compressor and your tubing uh, or any dust particles that might clog a compressor and you know scratch the surfaces. Um, then the heat exchangers. So the first step is just identifying the components, mm-hmm. figuring out, where in the world I can get them and then getting them in hand. Um, yeah. So, so where do you get, yeah, filter try. Cause like, so like I like McMaster car has some of that stuff. Like you can <laughs> right. search and you can find, you can figure out like, Oh, well, Parker, some, some, some company right. makes right. a range of filter dryers. I'm sure. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, but, but then usually you'll go to them and they're like, Oh, we deal in quantities of a hundred thousand or something right. like that. Right. Like right. How, how do you, like what's the next step? Cause you have to figure out like how this thing is made and then find yep. a person who does that process. So it's either going through a distributor, um, that works in the industry and services people, that, um, supplies equipment to people who are doing service calls. So mm-hmm. you're a restaurant and your freezer broke or your refrigerated case broke. And some technician comes out and gets a torch and some components and repairs it. Uh, the distributors supply components, for those use cases. But when you're buying a hundred, even something as, as small quantity as a hundred, it's above the technician quantities where someone's buying maybe five and it's way below industry quantities where a minimum order might be, as you said, a hundred thousand. So finding suppliers who are willing to deal with, with a weird little guy like me uh, is tricky and I've scoured the globe. So I have, Mm -hmm. Filter dryer is actually custom manufactured in China. <laughs> I have one heat exchanger that's custom manufactured in Thailand, a second heat exchanger that's custom manufactured in York, Pennsylvania, another heat exchanger that I had been getting from Korea, but moved production of that to China. Um, my fans come from Europe. Um, my water pumps come from the UK. My water tanks were custom made, but I'm probably going to move to an automotive product of all things. <laughs> so it's been kind of funky. And actually my sheet metal cases come from Canada. <laughs> 
So it's been funky as a single designer, single engineer yeah. trying to assemble the supply chain, and then writing checks to all these places and sending uh, money yeah. via wire transfer. I, I had, I've had several wire transfer problems. Like several wire transfers just, just disappeared. They, it's like I have no record, and the company doesn't exist anymore. Um, <laughs> I had oh, one God. wire transfer to Korea where the company said they never got it. But the bank said they did, and their bank said they didn't. And it was like, that's a wire transfer. You're supposed to be yeah. able to reconcile that. Like, it's yeah. exactly why we have the system. Um, and I switched. I'd been using a local bank in Rhode Island. I ended up switching to Bank of America because they had a wire transfer audit department that was solely about tracing international wire transfers. That's so weird. Yeah. Huh. And and they were, after, in, in several cases, they were able to figure out where the money had ended up yeah. and recover it. Um, and then, and then you're also, you're shipping carton size quantities. This is not pallets, right? This is, it's not, it's it, not full containers either. It's definitely not full containers. Yeah. Uh, cartons when I can pallets when I have to, Yeah, I had a pallet of heat exchangers come from, from Thailand and the components were $600. The shipping and handling was $2,700. Yeah. Yeah, that's that so, I've, we dealt with similar things recently. Yeah, that's, and uh, early days, uh, early on in this process, I got flamed on a, a open DIY bio board, and the complaint was: I looked on Alibaba and I see all these parts, and I know what they cost. And you're a highway robber; you're marking up the cost of this stuff so much. And my response was: If you think that's the case, go and build it yourself. Yeah, you know. The product that I had then was open source. You see what the components are. You see, like, you see the vendors. You have full transparency into what those things are. Go get them yourself. Yeah. So by the time you get all the parts and they all land at my uh, shop in Rhode Island, then they have to be prepped and assembled. So prepping is uh, cutting and shaping copper tubing into the the right lengths and right bends that I need. And I've gotten really good at that process, partly because I've redesigned everything to have right angle bends or 180 degree bends. Um, no more funky angles. Just simplifying the design made fabrication much easier. Um, everything gets cut, bent, cleaned, and prepped, and then connected and then brazed. So uh, after all the prep work, I hook up a nitrogen tank to the copper tubing purge the tubes actually flow nitrogen through the tubes so you don't get oxidation when you braise them and then i get out a high temperature oxycetylene torch mm. um i flow uh phosphorus silver copper or, oh, oh uh silver phosphorus copper some okay. some mixture um brazing flux into the or um uh brazing rod mm -hmm. into the joints and then i actually pressure test everything with pressurize nitrogen, dunk it in a tank of water, look for any leaks. And if I had more money, I would have a, a helium leak tester. Mm. Helium is a nice small molecule. It tends to leak through any gaps very quickly. Mm. And the leak testers can detect small quantities of helium leaking. So um, in lieu of that, I have a trash can. Yep. I fill it with 30 gallons of water and I dunk things and shake it so that there are no lingering bubbles and then watch to see if any bubbles emerge. Huh. Um, and when that proves to uh, proves out the 
the uh, tightness of the system. Then I pull a vacuum. Um, once the vacuum is holding and, and I'm really confident that the system is solid, uh, I'll put it on a test bench and I'll charge it with refrigerant and then test it and make sure it runs according to spec. Hmm. So that process used to take two to three days mm-hmm. for each system. Like full time two to three days or? Yeah, it's... not quite full time. Like okay. it basically like 18 hours of work Okay, um, from start to finish. And now I've got it down to about an hour. Wow. So, and, right. and a lot of that was, I was doing it all myself. You know, I designed yeah, yeah. everything on the computer and then I said, well, I, I can't pay anyone to build these because I haven't made any money yet. Mm-hmm. So I'll build them myself. And in the process of doing so, I just said, whoa, you know, I could, I need to change this. I need to change that. And after yeah. just going through the design and thinking, well, could I change this that I designed poorly? Yes. Um, by the end of six, eight months of building things, being like, oh my God, it's, I have to find a way to make this go faster. You find ways to make it go faster. Yep. Yeah. And that, and ultimately results in a much, much better set of products. Mm-hmm. Wait, so, uh, sorry, one, one detail from earlier on. You said that you purchased this copper, this quarter-inch copper tubing, and it comes on a roll, a spool, or something like that. Yep. And when it comes to you, it's filled with nitrogen and capped on both ends, with just brazed on plugs, basically. Uh, no, caps. just plastic caps, actually. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Yep. Um, there are some parts, like a filter dryer, which typically will be copper caps on both okay. ends. That you have to cut off. And uh, one of the tricky things is that once you have the system open to atmosphere, there's a very, very short period of time to get it all brazed up before the moisture levels can become problematic. Yeah. So uh, some people in the industry say, oh, yeah, you could leave a system open for a day. Um, I don't want any of these systems to come back failures Mm -hmm. as failures. So I try to get from the moment I start cutting open. filter dryers, taking the the seal plugs off a compressor. Um, once I start doing that, I want to have the system fully brazed and nitrogen purged and pressure tested within half an hour. Gotcha. Okay. Huh. Wild. Uh, okay, cool. So, <laughs> so that's how a refrigerator gets built. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so one question I have is like, how would this be different if you had hired a contract manufacturer or like, or would, or would it have been a possible and b like that iterative process that you're talking about, like learning, like doing it yourself and being very hands-on to it. To me, that's yep. like, that's something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah. And I, I wonder like, how do you like, are there times when you look at what you're doing and you're like, I just can't justify it. Like me, like I'm like, I'm like, I love brazing or whatever, but like, it doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. If I look at my per hour consulting rate Mm -hmm. and then look at what I'm charging for these systems, um, it it is definitely, there's, there's a significant amount of investment Mm -hmm. made and that investment I have to look at and say, um, does this really make sense as a business? Can I turn, uh, enough revenue and enough profit on the product? Not just, uh, you know, a lot of people look at, at, their profit and they say, Oh, it's just the cost of goods minus, um, how much, you know, whatever I can sell this for or the, the, whatever I can sell it for minus the cost of goods. And it, it, it sounds so obvious, but so many people make the mistake of not factoring in not just labor time, but 
all of the overhead, like, oh, you have to pay rent Mm -hmm. and that costs money and you have to accommodate that in the cost of the product you're selling um, to the cost of R&D. So I spent six, seven months refining the product to get to the point where it's at and sold some in that process. But um, really the cost that that I look at as the final cost of the product has to accommodate all that R&D time. And it really is R&D time, even if you're selling stuff in the process it's like well this is we're on rev 15 now yeah um and that that has cost time and time is money mm-hmm. so uh making sure that the product can accommodate that because ultimately once i get to the point where i can hire someone in house to to take some of this work on i have to actually not just like on paper account for the cost but they have to get paid yeah and if they're involved in that R&D process, getting from Rev 15 to Rev 25, well, their salary is getting paid for by the the retail cost of the product, yep. including the cost of goods. So it's important to accommodate that. Yeah. Um, as far as contract manufacturing goes, I had spent a number of years looking for contract manufacturing and talk with people in the industry who said, oh, you know, you could get those made at factories in Mexico. Um, you could get them made in factories in China. There's a whole bunch of issues with that. Um, one is that manufacturing in China requires sending a shipping container back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do low volume, high margin products when it's like, ah, oh, if I sell 25 of them, I'm good at my end, but I need 500 to fill a shipping container. It's a lot of money to have locked up in a sh- single shipping container. And at that point, you have to start doing things like getting your shipping container insured, not just for the cost of goods, but for the overall cost of the investment for the sunk costs, for the opportunity costs, because if that shipping container gets damaged or disappears, falls off the side of a ship, um, takes too long to get here and Mm -hmm. you've got commitments to customers. uh, That's, that's a lot of financial risk. Yeah. So working in Mexico seemed more appealing, but the, then I found out most of these companies won't deal with someone who's making less than tens of thousands of units yeah. and can write a multi-million dollar uh, purchase order and put 50% down because you know, I'm a new customer. And mm-hmm. so uh, ultimately, after four or five years of searching and talking to potential contract manufacturers, it just there was no path forward and I just had to build them myself. Mm-hmm. And wait, what about... What about, you know, if like, I, I think there's this tendency among people, including myself, who have like some experience in electronics and who, you know, you think contract manufacturer, you think, you know, maybe not Foxconn, but someone that looks kind of like Foxconn, this Foxconn-like things. Um, what about, on the other hand, thinking of it more like a general contractor? Like it's like contract manufacturer, just somebody who is, you know, in Rhode Island or here or wherever who has the ability to manufacture things or to, to, to learn how to manufacture things. Right. Right. Um, very different model. Obviously it's not somebody who like is already making refrigerators or whatever. Right. How, like, do you, do you think that would ever be an option for you? Um, that might be an option at some point. And mm-hmm. I, I've explored contract manufacturing at a number of different levels. There's a, a great company in China called AQS, mm-hmm. which uh, Bunny Huang, who um, does a bunch of really cool computer projects he has used them. Uh, a number of my colleagues at MIT or former colleagues at MIT work with them. And I actually did a research project with them looking at the cost of manufacturing in China versus the cost in the U.S. And uh, something like this 
would be a great project for a company like AQS if I had the capital to pay them, mm-hmm. the time to deal with their learning curve, uh, and the patience to deal with with the failures up front. So AQS isn't it would take more effort because it's an unfamiliar yeah. set of technologies for them. And yeah. they could certainly find as a general contractor, they could find the subcontractors who have the skills. But then the question becomes, what am I paying for? Yeah. And at the early stages, do I have enough confidence in the market and the revenue stream to be able to write a large enough check for them to make it happen? Yeah. Um, you know, $50,000, $100,000, it really becomes something where I'd, you know, AQS would be a company that I'd have more trust in, but that's still a big check to write, you know, coming from my retirement account or what's <laughs> left of it. Yeah. Um, and just sitting back and doing the math, it makes a lot more sense at the early stages for me to start manufacturing in-house, mm-hmm. uh, look for potential partners who are closer, like in Rhode Island, in New England, who can perform some of the duties and mm-hmm. some of the the functions. Uh, ultimately, I would love to get sub-assemblies made yeah. at contract manufacturers wherever they are. Um, it's great if they're local. I had a fun experience uh, with some electronics that I had manufactured in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And when I got the shipment, the couple days before the, they need to get out to their customer, the the end customer, it turned out that a pair of components had been rotated 90 degrees in the assembly process. Uh, a resistor and capacitor, it turns out their footprint made a square, which was a design mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even though they were labeled properly, um, when the cam operator was running the file to generate the pick and place data, he didn't pay close enough attention to the labels and and rotated them 90 degrees. So I got these boards back and 600 circuit boards with a large purchase order from Google that all like I would have been in big trouble if it didn't ship. Those 600 boards, not a single one worked. Mm-hmm. And I looked at them and said, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. Well, the great thing was I drove 15 minutes back down to the contract manufacturer and said, none of these work. These components are rotated 90 degrees. And they said to me, go have some lunch and come back when you're done eating. Yeah. <laughs> And we'll have it fixed. And lo and behold, I took three hours, drove, had lunch, came back, and they had a box waiting for me with 600 products with 1,200 components that had been lifted off, rotated 90 degrees, and replaced. It's amazing. And everything worked. And you just, if that had been stuff that I'd gotten shipped in from China, um, I'd probably be in jail right now for contract <laughs> fraud or some some Google hitman would have come and like... You know, <laughs> it would have been bad. Turned off your search. Yeah, right. so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of your Gmail belongs to us. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like there is a, there's a possible version of the world where you could purchase those parts from China, have them that purchase those parts. They end up being kind of screwed up for, for, you know, just a silly reason. Right. right? And they would show up here and you, even though you bought them from somewhere else, you could still call this, this shop and say, Hey, can you fix this for me? Right. But what people don't realize is, um, it's, it's, it reminds me of, um, in the bike industry, there's this new kind of wave of, um, internet bikes, right? You can buy a bike online. It shows up in a box. And Canyon, you put it together. for example. Are they, are they, I don't even know if they, they are. Are they internet? I didn't realize that. Oh. Um, they are, can you purchase them in a store? 
I don't know if you can purchase them in the store. I, thought, right. were, I don't know. Th- yeah. I thought they were all e-tail. That was I'm one thinking of the more of the low-end stuff, the oh, like, yeah. bikesdirect.com <laughs> or something like that, right? And what inevitably happens is somebody buys that bike. They have no idea how to assemble a bike. Right. And so they go to a bike shop and ask them to fix it. And you know, having having worked in a bike shop and been there when this happens, it is the most offensive thing that could possibly happen to have someone say, you know, I, I wasn't willing to pay for your time <laughs> when I was making the purchase decision, but now something's screwed up. Can you please fix it for me? Um, yeah, and that same thing kind of goes for for manufacturing this level as well, where, yeah, that the, the relatively small difference in price from buying it in Rhode Island versus buying it in China, or right. maybe, maybe even a larger difference in price, um, maintain that relationship is huge. It is. And, you know, people confuse cost of goods with value. Yep. And time and time again, I've seen projects and have been involved with some myself where I get a quote back from a company in China and wow, this is really inexpensive. And I look and see what the quote is from the company in the US, um, go with the company in China and something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's no real effective recourse beyond getting on an airplane, hiring a translator, spending several nights in a hotel and having them fix it. I, um, I had a battery vendor in China that was selling me lithium batteries and I got a shipment of batteries that were all dead. Mm. Wouldn't take a charge. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what crappy bin they, they took them from and threw them in a box and shipped them to me. They were also shipped, not labeled like a whole bunch of, of just safety issues um, and I had a colleague who spoke Mandarin and actually got on the phone with these people and harassed them until they shipped me another box. And they basically like changed the phone number after that <laughs> because the, it literally had changed the phone yeah. number because we couldn't get in touch with them after this. They shipped me a box of dead and broken batteries that were all torn open and it's like, oh, great. Now I've, I have a box full of toxic waste. Yeah. So instead of resolving the problem, it gave me something that costs several hundred dollars to dispose of properly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's like, oh, who do I, do I go to customs officials and tell them? Yeah. yeah. And they're just yeah. like, go away. We actually have real problems to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you manage your overseas vendors now? What's that? I mean, you, you said you had, you had like a half dozen countries there you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's complex. Yeah. It's complex. And a lot of it's just long-term relationships. And, okay. uh, some of these vendors I picked up through friends companies mm-hmm. that had had long trusted relationships with them. So I was willing to, to try it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases there just were no U S suppliers. Yep. So I had to go overseas and, and just like write a check and mm-hmm. cross my fingers and hope that stuff came back. Um, some of it comes from going to the trade shows, seeing them in person and being able to sit down with them and say, we're going to do this deal. And, um, you know, the, there's an opportunity here and the consequences are if you screw me over, uh, I have a deep network of people in this industry and they'll find out about it. Uh, if we work well together, that deep network becomes your network. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of like, hey, you know, here's an opportunity to work together and also expand our relationships if things go really well. And we'll try to just make sure things stay on the positive front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, have you had similar kinds of experiences in the U.S.? Like what like or like like people don't think of the risk factors in 
buying from a U.S. manufacturer as much. They think of the cost, but not really right. the risk as much. Have you had similar experiences or different kinds of experiences? That- I've, I tend to have good experiences with U.S. Okay. manufacturers. I'm actually I'm just trying to rack my mind to think if I have had any undesirable experiences that I have not been able to resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of any. For mm-hmm. for the most part, um, the language barriers and, and geographic barriers between the U.S. and China mm-hmm. have made those relationships, uh, I tend to tread more cautiously with them mm-hmm. and made them a little bit more difficult. But in the U.S., the appeal of being able to drive to the facility has yeah. made things easier. I know I have plenty of friends who've had issues with U.S. manufacturers as well. Um, but again, a lot of them, our legal system is more transparent. Um, there's a no language barrier. There are geographic advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, there's network advantages. The, the manufacturer in China might not care at all if I have a great network yeah. and I will spread the word through that network that they're terrible to work with. Yeah. Um, U.S. suppliers definitely care more about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I... I want to kind of push back on this narrative a little bit because I like, I like I've generally had good relationships with my U S manufacturers, but I also have had like, you know, I've been on phone calls where like, you know, non PG 13 words were used. Right. You know, and it's <laughs> oh, like, yeah, totally, totally. and, um, and yeah, like most of those have gotten resolved in some way, right? but they've also in some cases kind of hurt more. Um, uh, and also, you know, the, like there are these cultural differences that can come in surprising ways transcend uh, language uh, similarity, right? Absolutely. Like you can speak the same language, but just be from a different place and not really um, have the same value system, I guess. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and frankly, in China, I think because there's so many more companies doing the same thing, mm-hmm. a particular company is going to be more hungry for the opportunity to do something new mm-hmm. with, with whoever, whether it's an American uh, potential customer or a Chinese customer or from wherever. So if there are 10 companies that do say flexible circuit boards, being able to go and say, Hey, I'm trying to do this funky thing. It's not an off the shelf mm-hmm. part. Um, they will definitely jump more than I found us companies will. Yeah. Um, because it's like, Oh, they're, you know, I've got 20 competitors all doing the same thing and we're all yeah. in a three block radius. And if I can differentiate myself through this project working with you, uh, Kip Bradford here at MIT or in Rhode Island or whatever, this is a good opportunity for me to, to uh, not just distinguish myself, but establish a new area of expertise that I can then sell mm-hmm. to other places. And, and I think um, that's something where it is occasionally easier to find vendors willing to do small production runs. Um, or try something funky they've never done before. It's it's hustle, basically. It, it is it absolutely yeah. hustle. It is absolutely yeah. hustle. And it's something where building those relationships is, can be really useful because they support you and then you have an opportunity uh, to take advantage of scale production at different scales mm-hmm. where they can, they can make 100 of something for you and then have the capability of doing 100,000 and are willing to do the 100 because of not just the potential for doing the hundred thousand, but, but what they can showcase, yeah. you know, being able to say, uh, and, and that's part of the relationship building, being able to, to or giving them the opportunity to, to showcase the thing that you've done with them, mm-hmm. uh, to a broader audience as a selling point for their skills and capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you are effectively a one-man shop now? Make, it's, it's, it's you who is doing the procurement and the yes. bending and the brazing and so on and so forth. Yes, with some, some help sure. now and then. But yep. yeah, probably the majority, the vast majority, maybe yep. 75 to 90% of the work is me um, actually in my garage because I have an office in an old mill building that does not allow me to use open flames. Ugh. So I have the clean a textile office. mill or what, what kind of mill? I don't know. It, oh. I'm not sure what the origin was. It's probably a textile oh. mill because it's, it's an old mill in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful old building, large beams made of dead trees. It's awesome. <laughs> um, and so part of the, the business where everything's stored, where the conference room is the showcase of, of products, a lot of testing is at the mill building and then half mile away at my garage, I do welding, brazing, mm-hmm. cutting, all the dirty stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I question about the welding and brazing and stuff. I mean, how, well, I remember when I first like got an acetyl, like acetylene <laughs> cylinder in my house and having that really scare me. And then years later, kind of like like brushing it off. And I, actually, I still have acetylene tanks in my parents' garage. <laughs> and I, like, <laughs> I haven't used them in years. What? Uh, how industrial is this garage of yours? And like, what? Yeah, it's it's pretty much dedicated to making specialized HVAC products, refrigeration, yeah. air conditioning technologies. So I've got two tanks of nitrogen, oxyacetylene, and um, couple fire extinguishers. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, I, I have, I try to keep very stringent industrial safety mm-hmm. practices, partly because the garage is attached to my house. Yep. And, um, I go way beyond what you'd normally see in an HVAC shop because even the threat of a risk is, yeah. is just unconscionable, unbearable and mm-hmm. irresponsible. So it's like, yeah, all the tanks are always shut off. There's, um, CO2 and smoke and fire detectors and three fire extinguishers, mm-hmm. um, which have to this point never had to be used because I also braze on a steel table, mm-hmm. um, with nothing flammable within like 10 feet. Um, but so it's overkill, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just the smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to worry so much about it because it's just good. Good industrial hygiene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I wonder, like, how does that affect the way that you think about, like, I think a lot about, like, zoning rules and, like, how in the U.S. we have tended to, to keep all of the stuff that's even slightly gross or dangerous well away from our homes. Yep. And yet I, I like having it around me somewhat. Um how, how do you navigate that? Uh, I'm a fan of all the zoning rules. You're a fan um, of all, yeah, all the zoning rules, really? because <laughs> because I do think that there's there's a place for certain processes yeah. and and also scales. So I do things at a small enough scale that that I have one tank of refrigerant, two tanks of nitrogen, and a very very small oxyacetylene mm-hmm. setup that um, if I braze for three weeks, I have to go and replace yep. my tanks. Yeah, um, and so I can fall within residential zoning, residential insurance laws. Uh, if you have a tank of like a one gallon gasoline tank for a lawnmower in your garage, that is significantly more hazardous than all the stuff that I have. And I guarantee that most people with, with 
gas for their lawnmower don't have fire extinguishers and yeah. smoke alarms and fire alarms, they're making sure that if that gas spills and ignites, um, they know within a second. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe that there's a place for those industrial uh, or, or zoning protections to make sure that, that people don't abuse the privilege. Mm-hmm. And if I hit a scale where I need to have bigger drums of refrigerant and larger oxygen welding, oxycetylene welding rigs, I would rent out a space where I can do that work and do it safely and have everything properly ventilated. Mm-hmm. My garage is ventilated. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I can also just open the garage door, mm-hmm. but, but I have a, a welding fume extractor um, mm-hmm. that's fairly expensive because I also value my own health yeah. and lungs. So yeah, I, I, uh, there are a lot of things that you, that people can do in their houses, like soldering, little wood shops, little CNC machines. And those are all great. Mm-hmm. I think starting to use industrial chemicals that might be hazardous or flammable, yep. then, then you should ask yourself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do I really want to do this in my house? Yeah, totally. Or should yeah. I find a space where I can do this safely out of my house? Yeah. Yeah. How do you like being a one man shop now? Like how is that, how's that feel? <sighs> It is of necessity. It's yeah. not the way I would like to operate, uh, partly because it gets lonely, um, mm-hmm. partly because it's not where I can add the most value. I can, I can do a lot of great design work. I can do thermodynamics of a mechanical system pretty quickly. Uh, I can do CAD and SOLIDWORKS really quickly. So to try to split my time between doing the business and marketing side, the procurement the design and fabrication um starts to be overwhelming and exhausting so i would love to be at a point where i could hire some designers and hire Mm -hmm. some some hvac technicians and have a business development person take some time to get there my biggest problem business-wise has been any time that i've just started to get momentum to sell a line of products and i've got customers who are interested I keep getting hired to faculty positions. <laughs> it's like, I'm just about to get this product out and then Yale that uh, Ivory Tower or, calls back or yeah. MIT or Brown. And it's like, Oh, this is great. Except I was, I was like on the cusp of selling something awesome, mm-hmm. doing a Kickstarter campaign and everyone's going to love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you like working in academia? MIT media lab was fantastic because it's a place where the balance of scientific research for me and uh, industrialization and commercialization were finely tuned. It's like I could, I could spend some time doing research. I could spend some time trying to get that research into the world as a physical product. And it kind of pushed all the buttons on my, uh, maybe a little too well because I worked 5,000 hours a year and that's not entirely healthy, but it was so much fun. Yeah. The, the media lab was a fantastic place and I really loved the, that, uh, environment. That's a very special part of academia though. It's unusual. When I was faculty at Brown, it didn't quite push the, the kind of, I want this stuff to have impact in the world buttons. It definitely pushed the, I've got great, super smart colleagues buttons. Um, I'm interacting with, with people who are thinking about big questions and that's a lot of fun. But it was hard to have that and also say, okay, 
this is great research. Let's go and turn it into a product and then have it change the world. Um, that was something that I definitely experienced at MIT. And so that kind of restored my confidence in academics. Um, and, and Brown has lots of great things going for it. But it was very much a, a research-focused institution, and the research was really theoretical. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the right place for me being interested in, yeah, doing some theoretical research, but also turning that research into stuff that's I could put in my hands and I could Haggling give to manufacturers and that, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like th- there is a motto, not super formalized at at uh, the Media Lab, but it used to be demo or die, you know, demonstrate or die, and then became deploy or die. And the deploy part is really important because it mm-hmm. means that the Media Lab is special. It's not another place in academia where people are doing research and they write a publication for science and nature and then they move on to the next thing. It's like, oh, yeah, we care about science and nature publications, but we also want to see this work transform society. Mm-hmm. And so that that really uh, did it for me. It's like, I get to do research and I get to transform society. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I'm afraid that we are out of time. Uh, Kip, where do people find you? Where can people learn more about what you're doing? Uh, I would say on Twitter, but I've, uh, <laughs> um, I will probably be updating my various websites soon. So uh-huh. kipbradford.com, K-I-P-P-B-R-A-D-F-O-R-D. I, I, I come up in Google searches yep. as the top hit all the time. Like the top 10 pages are the things I'm doing. So uh, I'll, I'll try um brie pettis once told me as as a prod if it doesn't if it's not on the internet it doesn't exist mm-hmm. well 98 percent of my work is not on the internet and it's some of that's a small portion of that's because i've had clients that i've signed ndas with but most of it is just i've been so busy building things i haven't had time to document it and i think a lot of people are familiar with that problem mm-hmm. so i'm trying to take a step back and slow down and document and and uh, just build a portfolio of the things I've been working on so I can share it so I can open source more of the projects. Um, I'll, I'll get better at it. I promise. I hope. <laughs> well, uh, getting, getting a bump of traffic is always uh, helpful. I find so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, people are going to be looking at my site. I should probably, you know, make it be beyond 2010 and yeah. get some projects on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Kip, thank you so much for coming on. Spencer, thank you. It's been great being here. For links to the things we talked about in this episode, visit theprepared.org slash podcast. As always, thanks to the prepared.org's supporters for making this show possible. My name is Spencer Wright. See you next week.